Let's give our attention and our hearts to the word of God. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that we would find in this your word exhortation, where it's needed rebuke, that we would fall before your word as the authority is you this morning. So Lord, give your minister faithfulness to that authority and give us hearts and lives ready to live for you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been uh, looking at what might feel to us like a law section for the last three weeks, right? If you look at the first part of Titus 2, it feels very law. Live like this. Don't do that. Be like this. That we, we would maybe call that law. It's certainly commandment from God. And now, at the end of that section, that law, those commandments are, are put in perspective, they're put in their relationship to the gospel as we have the gospel itself put before us in our text. And I think especially two phrases in these verses this morning, when drawn together, uh, give us the gospel. The gospel is put before Titus, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared Jesus gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. This is the summary given us of the gospel here in Titus. The grace of God appeared. And there are several things that this statement uh, tells us the gospel is not. The gospel is not just an idea. The gospel's a man. The gospel's not some uh, worldly philosophy. It's not some self-help concept. Uh, The grace of God that appeared isn't some uh, vision of a better life. The grace of God that appeared is that Jesus gave himself for us. The gospel is in a man. Now, now, to you in this room, I know that that's not some shocking thought, uh, but all you have to do is look at the uh, Cretan American church and the attitude that is given towards Christ himself, the kinds of things that famous pastors are saying in our day and age, things like, I know I've mentioned this before, but it wasn't too long ago that a well-known popular pastor wrote a book, and in it he said if they found the body of Jesus Christ 
and actually absolutely proved that this body they'd found in the ancient in uh, in Israel was Jesus and that he'd never actually risen from the dead it wouldn't shake my faith well Paul says it would shake mine we of all people would be the most to be pitied if Jesus did not rise from the dead. The gospel isn't some spiritual concept. It isn't some uh, vague inner thing. It's that Jesus died and came back to life. So the gospel is not an idea. It's a historic man. Jesus appeared. He is the embodiment of the grace of God the Father. Another thing it isn't is an enabling of human ability. It's not that Jesus appeared and just made it now possible for us to pursue salvation. Before we weren't able to, and and now it's possible for you to want to be saved. No, Christ didn't just make it possible. He brought salvation for us. He bought salvation for us. For us, He came, we're told, to redeem us, to redeem us as his own special people. He came to bring salvation to a special people. He came indeed to make us a special people, brought out of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people of Adam's fallen race. The gospel is a man, and it's a man who didn't just make something a possibility, but he actually brought salvation to us. He redeemed us. And Ephesians 2 verse 8 makes it clear, not just redeemed us, and then you have to to embrace his redemption. But his redemption includes Ephesians 2 verse 8. That he supplies the very thing we so often think is our contribution. So easy to think our contribution is, I believe. God put his grace out there. I put my faith out there. And the two things together bring salvation. And Ephesians 2.8 we read, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that, that faith, is not of yourselves it is a gift from god and so this glorious salvation is not just an idea it's not a self-help thing it's not an enabling it is a man appearing to bring salvation and he brings the whole package the whole gift of god to give you eternal life to make you his own special people and then a third thing that the gospel is not from this short summary is that it's not a get out of jail free card how much of the christian life is spent as if we're playing a a, a eternal game of monopoly and i've got the get out of jail free card so i don't have to worry anymore what's going to happen i can just on the last day throw that card down and get out of hell without any problems and we keep living exactly as we were But notice that the definition given here of the gospel. Jesus appeared to redeem us from every lawless deed and purify us. 
as a special people for himself, zealous for good works. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It is a, a salvation where we are transformed. He would make us righteous, truly righteous. And he does that by paying the penalty, removing the guilt and the filth of our sin on himself, on the tree, but also doing something else. He takes away, but then he gives his own righteousness so that when God the Father looks at us, God the Father doesn't see just someone brought back to a neutral position with their sins removed, but God the Father sees someone who is robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Uh, that's why uh, the past several adult Sunday school classes, uh, the, the man J. Gresham Machen was, was one of the people we were studying in those videos. And uh, it wasn't mentioned in the class. His last recorded words were writing a letter from his deathbed to a friend. And he said to his friend, Thank God for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. It's not just the passive, Christ dying on the cross, taking the guilt of our sin, and paying the penalty of hell. But he saw in his dying moments that also it was that he would soon stand before God the Father. And would he be naked or would he be clothed? Thank God for the active obedience of Christ, the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. This glorious gospel is set before us here in the text. It's a very glorious gospel. And it's a gospel that teaches us something. Do you see that in the text? This grace of God that brings salvation has appeared teaching. You see, the Cretan Christians, and sadly so often we, may too often give lip service to stating the glorious gospel, but then our lives show that we have not learned what the gospel teaches. The gospel transforms us, but it also teaches us. The glorious free grace of God, which alone can save, which apart from any works of our own, brings us reconciliation to the Father, nonetheless teaches us. What does it teach? There are four things in our text that the gospel would teach us. First, the gospel teaches us to deny. We find that the gospel teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. In fact, you'll notice that I just paraphrased that because Paul actually says it teaches us and then it's assumed that the gospel has already t taught us to deny these things. To Paul, it's an assumption that you would already have been taught to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. And then he's going to move on to tell you what else the gospel teaches you. It's an assumption. And sadly, we, we can't assume it because we often continue to live in ungodliness and worldly lusts. We, 
We want our cake and we want to eat it too. We, we want to be uh, saved, but we want to still enjoy the pleasures and the good things, good things in quotes there, sinful things of this world. Uh, denying the worldliness and worldly lusts and ungodliness is in part a denying of the importance of it for your happiness and wholeness. Do you deny that all the pleasures of America are necessary for your happiness and wholeness? Do you deny with your actions and with your heart affections that the sinful things of a Cretan world are necessary for your joy? The gospel teaches you to deny those things are necessary for your joy. To deny that those things are necessary for your wholeness. Now we we encounter a lot in our culture, if you tell someone that something isn't right, you can be accused of, of attacking their wholeness or their identity, their life. And the shameful thing is, if that person is a Christian, their life is not those things. And they are by the gospel taught that their identity and their wholeness is in Jesus. And therefore, they don't need those things to be whole or full of joy or purpose. I think this denying, though, is not only denying the necessity of those things in our lives, it's also denying their power to control us. Denying the place and the power of it in your life. I, I love the, the part of the hymn we just sang in Rock of Ages, and sometimes it gets changed in the hymnals. But one of the most amazing lines in the hymn, be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. That's the message of Romans 6, isn't it? That not only by the grace of God are you set free from the guilt and shame and damnation associated with your sin, but you are also set free from its power. It no longer has dominion over you. You are now a servant of righteousness. Do we deny the false claim then that sin, when it comes in and it says, you know, you need to do this. You'll never be satisfied. You'll never be happy unless you have this pleasure. Do we say, no, I've been cleansed not only from the curse of living like that, but also from the power that forces me to live like that. Denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. This is something the gospel teaches. It wasn't something we've always known. We don't know it by nature. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins 
in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we once walked, once conducted ourselves in the disobedience, I'm sorry, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But you, you were children of wrath, but you're not. And you don't walk in it anymore. Do you deny worldliness? And one of the things about worldliness that we are to deny is the false goodness of this world. And I don't mean by that that we're, we're really glad when a neighbor stops and helps us change a flat tire or something. I, I don't mean denying that there are nice things people do for me and act as if they don't. What, what I mean by this is, do we deny that all the best things I do apart from Christ do not earn me anything. See, part of the lie as believers, we may reject shameful sins. Oh, I don't live like that anymore. But we continue to have pride and arrogance thinking, I'm a good person. And I've done, I do these good things. And, and surely that contributes to God's pleasure in me instead of seeing as we deny those things that it is Christ alone that causes the father to have exquisite joy and it is in Christ exquisite joy in you we need to be at the same place Isaac Watts was when he wrote no more my God I boast no more of all the duties I have done. I quit the hopes I held before to trust the merits of thy son. The best obedience of my hands dares not appear before your throne. But faith can answer your demands by pleading what my Lord has done. The gospel which has appeared in Christ Jesus teaches us to deny. But secondly, it teaches us then to live. Having denied one way of living, it teaches us to live. To live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. What does that look like? Titus 2, 1 through 10. That's what he's saying here. He's just gone through the, the difficult task of telling Titus that he has to teach the older people who don't want to listen to young Titus. And he has to have the older people teach the younger women things that they don't want to hear. And he has to set an example for the younger men who don't want to look and listen. And in the context of all of that, he says, but the good news is this. Those who see Christ, who hear the gospel, are taught by the gospel the very things you just had to teach them. 
that it is not two separate things, that, that it's not that chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 is law. Oh, but I'm not under the law, I'm under grace, praise God. Let's just skip over chapter 2, 1 through 10, move right to chapter 2, verse 11. No, chapter 2, verses 11 through 15 are saying that when you understand the gospel right, you understand that although the best obedience of your hand cannot dare to stand before the throne, the gospel teaches you the life of gratitude anyway. And that's what it looks like. So we're going to move on. We had several, three, four sermons on those verses of how to live. And we're going to move on from that. It teaches you to live. And then it teaches two other things. And these are kind of subsets of living. How are we to live? What is our life to look like? Or, or how are we to pursue this life? The gospel teaches us to deny, to live, and then to look. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is how we are to go about living. We are to live by looking. Like Paul says in Colossians 3, set your mind on things above where Christ is, where your life is hidden with Christ and God. That, says Paul in Colossians 3, will enable you to put to death what needs to be put to death. Deny it. And to put on what needs to be put on. Live in it. Set your eyes on things above. Here he says, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The blessed hope. What a phrase. That, that language elicits from us this, this thought of something that's unseen, but certain. Unseen, but certain. That is promised, but not yet realized or experienced in full. For it is laid up secure in heaven for us to be possessed at the appearance of Christ. Indeed, beloved, when he says the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, the hope is that he will appear. The blessed hope is that one day this glorious appearance will happen. And with these eyes, we will see the Lord. Whether it's tomorrow or in a thousand years. With these eyes and with Job and all the saints before, we will see God. And who is this God? This is a unique uh, statement. Paul doesn't usually state it quite like this. Often Paul will do God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But actually here what Paul says is focused on the one person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, the second person. He says explicitly that Jesus is our great God and Savior. Wow. The one for whom we wait, what more glorious appearing could there be 
the God whose majesty was so great that if Moses had gazed upon his face, he would have died. The God who then Moses and Elijah and Peter and James and John got to see shining forth in the face of his eternal son, Jesus Christ, on that mountain, and which Peter makes very clear in 2 Peter 1, you will get to see as well. Now it's a blessed hope. That's what Peter's saying in 2 Peter 1 as well, isn't it? He's saying, well, you didn't get to see him on the mountain. We got to see him. You didn't get to see him, but you have all the benefit of having seen him by faith. Because in the word, it's been promised and declared and revealed to you in the gospel. And one day that blessed hope comes to fruition when Peter, James, and John, and Moses, and Elijah will be raised from the dead. We will be raised from the dead if we aren't then alive. And with them, we will get to see him face to face. The blessed hope of the gospel. It's a blessed hope. Because the world hears the story of a man who appeared and died. And then we celebrate that he came back to life. And the world says, fools. What a waste of life thinking that anyone could raise themselves from the dead. And we say our hope is that he did do that. And it's not a wishy-washy hope. It's a blessed hope. We know that he did it. And we know that one day we will see him at his glorious appearing. We will see him. So we are to live looking. And furthermore, that's a, a looking that leads us to a life that's not for here and now. We're taught to live by looking ahead. And so when all those pleasures are denied and the world says, what life do you have left? We say, eternal life. He is coming again. He is coming again with power and great glory. He's coming again. We live by looking. And then fourth and finally, we live by looking. We're taught to deny, to live, to look. And finally, we're taught to devote. Struggled a little bit with the language on that one. Technically, it's we're taught to be zealous. But that didn't grammatically fit with the other. To devote. To devote ourselves to a zealous life for Christ. Not a ho-hum life. Deny and then live. But the gospel teaches us the type of life is a zealous life. He redeemed and purified us for himself to be his own special people. And what marks his special people? They are zealous for good works. We are to have zeal. Our lives are to be devoted to the zeal. That we 
whom he has washed with his blood, purified for a purpose to live for him. This, this word zeal, both in the Old and New Testament, is also the word jealousy. To be jealous for good works. Oh, we, of course, we don't translate it that way. Because you hear jealous, and it's always a bad thing, isn't it? We hear jealous, and we think, oh, well, that's a horrible person. They're jealous. And, of course, most of our jealousy is sinful. But there's a good jealousy. There's a good jealousy. There can be a jealous husband or wife who is not trusting of their spouse, who is looking for reason to doubt them, who treats them wrong all the time. That's sin. But there's also a proper jealousy within marriage, a zeal. For faithfulness. And each one of you who's married ought to be jealous that you be faithful in your marriage. Jealous of your own heart affections. They aren't yours anymore. You've given them to her, to him. Jealousy or zeal in the Bible is the idea of loving something so much that you want to guard it closely and passionately. We've been washed in Christ's righteousness. Created to love purity. Are you zealous for that? He's he's the one who purifies us to be his people. That's very... That's not very different from marriage type of language, is it? And that's usually where we find God talking about jealousy and zeal from himself, non-sinful kind, in the Old Testament, when he's using the imagery of him, the groom, and us, the bride. A passion to guard the relationship. He's created us to be his people, pure people. And remember what we've already seen about purity? To the pure, all things are pure. Who are the pure? He purified us. And now all of life is to be lived, devoted, zealously to purity for the glory of his name. Out of a zeal to be in this relationship with him who died for us who gave himself for us. We are to passionately defend that relationship. And that requires not not the wicked kind of uh, jealousy, God's going to betray me, but the right type of spousal fidelity. I need to be on guard of my life to live only for him. So long as we both shall live, well, he's not dying again. And in him we have eternal life. To the pure all things are for purity, the pursuit of godliness. We are to live devoted 
like a spouse who's jealous to maintain that relationship, to guard righteousness passionately for the glory of King Jesus, our groom. Such devotion would not be content with a, uh, a kind of a, a bare profession. No, profess your faith and then you just go on with life as you've always been. But it longs to exalt Christ in zealous service. The gospel takes hold of our hearts, teaches us to deny worldliness, live righteously, looking for Christ's return, zealously crying out to God, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my hands, take my feet, take my love, take myself, take my will, take my heart, take my silver, take my gold. This is what the gospel teaches us. The question is, have we learned this blessed gospel lesson? Has this grace of God that brings salvation worked its glorious hope and passion in your life? I pray that it has and that it will continue to do so. Well, just one other very short point from this text, because I don't want a whole sermon on it. So... One last point. How does the gospel teach this? How is it that the gospel teaches all of this? Look at verse 15. Paul says to Pastor Titus, Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. The gospel teaches these things primarily through the preaching of the word. Therefore, we all need to attend to preaching very diligently, and we need to not despise preaching. It can be easy to despise preaching, can't it? Because the preacher's a sinner. Maybe he's younger than you. Maybe you're aware of some of his sins and maybe suffer because some of them. It's easy to despise preaching, but we are to attend and not despise preaching and not because of me, not because of the preacher. We don't say this is valuable because I like this guy. What is the reason we must not despise preaching? Because of its authority. Paul tells Titus, preach with authority. It's not Titus's authority he's talking about. It's the authority of the word of God. It's as preaching is faithful to the word itself. That it therefore has all the authority of the word itself. Please catch that that's an important nuance. Insofar as preaching is unfaithful to the word, it has no authority over you. But if preaching is faithful exposition of what God has said, it comes with all the authority that God 
gives his word. Remember how this letter began. Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, an acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God, our Savior. He has spoken and he has promised and he has manifested Christ through preaching. 